some care, much care has gone back to interpersonal contacts in the office. But some disciplines, like, for example, behavioral health, can be handled almost as well and in some ways better over a telemedical link than in an office visit. And there are certain aspects of internal medicine, certain specialties in internal medicine. Diabetes might be an example of that, where a lot can be accomplished over a telemedical link. That was Dr. William Hansen of the University of Pennsylvania Health System speaking about telemedicine, which is our topic on today's episode, episode number 49 of Looking Forward. Welcome to Looking Forward, where we speak with experts about marketplace and societal trends, and most importantly, how they might affect you. I'm Jeff Ostroff, the host of Looking Forward. If you're like me, you're fascinated by trends in the future. In fact, several years ago, that was one of the things I focused on in a book I wrote. Hi, everyone. As mentioned, today we're going to be speaking about a growing trend in healthcare, the use of telemedicine. In the first part of this two-part series, we'll discuss such things as the evolution of telemedicine, how it's been used in recent years, differences in the use of telemedicine globally, and some aspects of COVID-19's impact on telemedicine. In the second part of this series, we'll continue our discussion of COVID and telemedicine, plus discuss the future and potential opportunities offered by telemedicine. To help us do all this, we've got an expert in that field. He's Dr. William Hansen. C. William Hansen III, MD, is Professor of Anesthesiology and Critical Care, Surgery, and Internal Medicine at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Hansen is also an internist, anesthesiologist, and intensivist. He is currently the Chief Medical Information Officer and Vice President of the University of Pennsylvania Health System and Interim Chair of Anesthesiology and Critical Care. His anesthetic specialty is cardiac anesthesia for cardiac surgery, thoracic surgery, as well as lung and heart transplantation. Dr. Hansen's research using electronic nose technology to detect diseases such as pneumonia and sinusitis by breath analysis has been featured in Scientific American. He recently published The Edge of Medicine, the technology that will change our lives, a nonfiction book profiling innovations in biotechnology that are changing the delivery of medical care and the ways in which they're altering the human experience. He has also published Smart Medicine, How the Changing Role of Doctors Will Revolutionize Healthcare. In this book, Dr. Hansen reveals the revolutionary changes that will soon be sweeping through the medical community. His research has been featured in national and international publications, including Popular Science, U.S. News and World Report, and he's been a guest on NPR's Fresh Air, as well as television documentaries on the Discovery Channel. Hi, Bill. Welcome to Looking Forward. Hi, Jeff. How are you? Thanks for having me. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to have you. Bill, you're an internist and an anesthesiologist, and you're also Penn Medicine's chief medical officer. That's quite a resume right there. We're not even going to talk now about your books. So can you please tell our listeners a little bit about how and when you became involved with telemedicine? 
Well, I want to correct one thing. I'm, uh, we do have a chief medical officer. I'm the chief medical information officer. Chief which medical is a, information officer. Yes, a newish role, uh, not, maybe not so much now, but it's uh, designed to straddle the information technology sphere and that of uh, medical practitioners, you know, be they doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists, pharmacists, or what have you. I have had a longstanding interest in computers as they relate to medicine. And I hesitate to say this, but it actually goes back to a project that I was involved with in high school. And um, at that point, I had some exposure to somebody who was working with early computers. This was back in the 70s. And and then went on uh, between college and medical school to work with that same individual here at Penn in uh, what was then called data processing, where we used punch cards and magnetic tape and uh, these huge uh, platter disk drives to store information. And we programmed in program languages that are now relatively archaic, like COBOL, Fortran, BASIC, and assembly language. Yes. Yeah. And so I, I continued to work in that area um, during med school, and then interestingly went out to do a residency in Palo Alto in the um, early 80s, which was exactly the same time that Apple uh, was being spun up in a garage probably blocks away from me and unbeknownst <laughs> to me at the time. Yes. I was at Stanford, which was a computer science uh, mecca as well. So I had some exposure during my uh, residency. Uh, this was in internal medicine. And as you mentioned, I went on to do a residency in uh, anesthesia after that. And I do practice critical care as well. Okay. So I came back from California to the University of Pennsylvania and did an anesthesia residency and then started working with computers in some early research during my anesthesia training and then and then casually during my early years as a faculty member. And without going into all the details, at one point I was asked by uh, the leadership of Penn Medicine to start a telemedical intensive care service. And that sounds like something that wouldn't work, the idea that an intensive care doctor would be able to practice remotely. But it turns out that an expert intensivist covering several intensive care units can guide and advise nurses and doctors at the bedside, oftentimes younger, less experienced nurses and doctors, and oftentimes in the off-hour period of time in the care of patients using information feeds from those bedsides. So EKG, what are the ventilator settings, uh, that kind of information, and use that to respond to questions or ideally identify problems before they uh, turn into catastrophe. So act proactively. And then when uh, Penn Medicine felt it was necessary to have somebody in the role of a chief medical information officer, they asked me to do that. And then to finish up the answer, a long-winded answer to your question, so I had been working in telemedicine, and with the advent of the pandemic, telemedicine exploded, as we're all aware. Yes, and the idea of using telemedicine for intensive medical care does sound very unfamiliar to me, because I always think about it as your doctor who's maybe located in the city, and you're in a rural area, and it's a great way to be able to access the doctor for things that don't require you to be there in person. But you were actually doing this in guiding younger doctors and nurses through these procedures. When was that, Bill? About when was that happening? 
Well, our tele-ICU is about 15 years old now. So we were one of the first adopters of this kind of technology. And at this point are one of the largest single providers. We will have uh, fairly shortly upwards of 350 beds, 350 intensive care beds under the uh, telemedical umbrella, so to say. Uh, so it's a very large service. There are companies and, and health systems that provide this across multiple states. Uh, we're actually working within our own system and within our five or six hospital system, we have about 350 adult intensive care beds. Wow, that's terrific. I want to take you back, Bill, to the very basics, the fundamentals. We use the word telehealth, telemedicine. Can you give us what you would consider to be the layperson's definition of what we mean by telemedicine or telehealth? Sure, that's a good question. So tele is uh, the Greek word for from afar. And telemedicine is medicine from afar. And if you go back to its historic roots, there were uh, ships that would fly plague flags to indicate as they came into harbor that they had a plague victim on the boat. And they would go into what was then called a 40-day period at anchor. And the root of the word quarantine is 40. So a 40-day period of waiting for that individual to die or, uh, you know, for the the plague to have manifested itself on the boat before they were boarded and allowed to connect to the, uh, the city so that the disease wouldn't spread in the city. That was probably the first type of telemedicine, but things like the telegraph, things like the early telephone, telemedicine has been around in some form for a very long time. What it means now is obviously quite a bit different from even as recently as uh, during the early space shots where there were the astronauts were monitored from Cape Canaveral uh, for their vital signs. Now we have this internet paradigm where points can be connected for real-time connections between a patient and a doctor, a doctor and a doctor, a health system and another health system, uh, which allows for very rich encounters in real time using audio visual. But, you know, we can use the things that would be considered to fall under the rubric of telemedicine include telephonic connections. They include asynchronous. So, uh, for example, um, 10 years ago or more, uh, somebody established the idea that radiologists are not typically reading films at night in the U.S. That's not entirely true, but they established a company where U.S. trained, U.S. credentialed, U.S. licensed doctors were sitting in Australia reading films in real time from patients in, in the U.S. When I say in real time, I don't mean that they are reading them as they come out of the machine, but they were able to give concurrent readings of these films using what's asynchronous. So they, the, the study was acquired, and then some short period of time thereafter, the radiologist in Australia was able to read the film of the patient rather than waiting until the, the following morning, for example. So there's asynchronous connections. There are synchronous connections, which is what we tend to think of more often, where somebody's looking at a patient just as you and I are looking at each other right now. So these sorts of connections have allowed us to do a lot. And I think we had an idea of what the limitations of telemedicine were 
before the pandemic and then stretched every concept of what the limitations were during the pandemic. And we had patients who otherwise might not have been able to or might not have chosen to use telemedicine for their care, suddenly forced to and providers same way, uh, providers who might have been dragged kicking and screaming into telemedicine, uh, suddenly that was the only way that they had to practice. So it was a hugely transformative uh, force on medicine that will leave its impact forever. Yes. I would never have thought about Cape Canaveral and the astronauts as being part of telemedicine. And I'm familiar with the notion of radiologists reading x-rays overnight. A friend of mine who's now retired was a radiologist, but I wasn't thinking about somebody in Australia doing something like that. And the whole concept you mentioned, Bill, of asynchronous telemedicine, I knew nothing about that. So that's very interesting. Yeah, let me give you another uh, quick example of asynchronous. Sure. So um, we have, believe it or not, here at Penn, expert tropical dermatologists. They're very skilled in uh, looking at the problems that arise in Africa or, say, Central America. We have a dermatologist who set up a research arrangement by which field workers in Africa carrying a mobile phone can go to a village, fill out a brief questionnaire giving the patient's history, take high-resolution photographs of tropical dermatologic problems, and then ship them asynchronously to a dermatologist in Philadelphia who can then render a diagnostic opinion and send that back to the field worker or the person directing care in that African village. So again, you know, using technologies like phones and the internet to connect patients who historically would not have gotten that kind of care with providers who are experts in that kind of care. That same technology, you know, using a, an African patient can also be used for dermatology access in Philadelphia from point to point. Yes. It's a great example of globalization when you start talking about the dermatologist at Penn and yep. somebody in Africa. It's just, I love that. I love that idea of globalization in the medical world. I think it's terrific. You kind of touched on this, Bill, but I would like you to perhaps hit on some key milestones. Telemedicine was around in modern times for quite a while. It has been around for quite a while, but there have been certain key milestones or markers, haven't there, that have made it take a leap. And I'm talking about right now, before COVID, we'll get to COVID. Can you speak to that? I mean, this whole idea you're talking now about the web, right? And this is all relatively new. So what do you see as being the key determinants of how telemedicine brought us to a point in 2020, just before COVID, and got us ready for the big push in 2020? Sure. Well, I spoke about tele-ICU. That was a, a concept that was surfaced by two colleagues of mine who were intensive care doctors at the time at uh, Johns Hopkins. Uh, they had the, the idea that there would be benefit by having an intensivist look after patients in intensive care units from a remote location. And interestingly, the thought leaders at Johns Hopkins essentially said that will never fly. Okay. <laughs> so my colleagues took that 
technological idea out, formed their own company, and of course it did fly. And you know, so so the the idea that these rich data streams can be mined for information in that sphere was sort of an unexpected leap forward that uh, then turned into a business model that was successful well before the pandemic, but then proved to be even more so successful during the pandemic when intensive care units were uh, overwhelmed. Another thing that sort of driven telemedicine is the idea that in places like Philadelphia, we have high concentrations of experts in a given field or in fields. Those experts are not evenly distributed across the United States. There are large areas of rural United States where you might not find a stroke neurologist, for example. And yet we know that uh, you may have heard the expression, time is brain. When someone has a stroke, there are interventions that can be undertaken relatively immediately that can dramatically cut down on the damage from a stroke by, for example, busting a clot. So stroke medicine was an example of where telemedicine worked fantastically. So stroke neurologists were and remain on call for uh, stroke guidance in distant locations. It might even be an ER, you know, a suburban ER that doesn't have a stroke neurologist on site. You have a stroke neurologist uh, contracted or on call to advise, should this patient get a clot-busting drug or not? Same thing, obviously, in, say, rural North Dakota, where there is not a stroke neurologist. Maybe there may be 10 in the state. I'm speculating there, but I mean, this is a way to distribute expertise more evenly across uh, vast parts of uh, the United States. So there were examples of paradigms that made very good sense to insurers and to uh, potential uh, buyers of the service that took off. So the the technologies that were necessary to make that happen uh, had evolved and the business models were apparent. So there were sort of carve-outs to allow that work to happen. Having said that, there were all sorts of obstacles to that kind of interstate uh, medical care. The doctor had to be licensed in all of the states in which he or she practiced and had to be credentialed in hospitals where he or she operated. So a lot of those sorts of things were barriers, but the idea that telemedicine might improve patient outcomes under certain circumstances was out there and prevalent before COVID. What happened during COVID was a massive uptick in the adoption of the technology, but also a lot of relaxation of some of those barriers and improved reimbursement models that made it possible for um, folks to practice telemedical care and get reimbursed for it. Okay. I want to just make a couple of quick comments based on what you said. The first one is I can't remember his name. His first name, I think, was Fred. But you reminded me of this. He put forth a proposal when he was in college. I don't know if he was getting his master's degree, his PhD, whatever it was, in business school for the idea of planes being able to fly packages quickly from one place to another. Again, don't quote me, it'd have been his professor, this will never work. Well, that is FedEx, right? So when you talked about your colleagues saying, this would be a great idea, telemedicine, eh, it'll never work. We hear that so often. The second thing is, 
I lead a class and we read travel writing. And one of the essays was about the Cherokee Nation living in North Carolina, the remainder of the Cherokee Nation down there in North Carolina. And the woman who wrote the essay was speaking about a young man who lived there who contracted cancer. And he had to drive, go like hundreds and hundreds of miles to find the expertise that was needed to take care of his cancer. And when you talked about these examples of North Dakota and so forth, that really reminded me of that and how telemedicine can really help with that sort of disequilibrium in care. So I appreciate your sharing that. Jeff, let me, let me give you one yeah, more example of something no. that, that might be might resonate with people. So uh, at Penn Medicine, we have hospitals uh, as far north as uh, Princeton in New Jersey and then uh, Lancaster in, in western Pennsylvania. So we're geographically a large organization. Um, we do transplants really at one of our hospitals, at our downtown Philadelphia hospital called HOP. We do bone marrow transplants, heart transplants, lung transplants, kidney transplants, liver transplants. So uh, those folks that get transplants in our organization have to come physically to downtown Philadelphia, get their transplant done because they need to be in a setting where all of the rich resources of a transplant center are available. They may then go back hundreds of miles to Princeton uh, or to Lancaster, for example, to where they live. The pre-op and post-op care can be managed using telemedical encounters with the doctor. So even within our own system, we can leverage this telemedical idea of someone uh, having their pre-op guidance, actually even in their pre-op assessment done remotely, and then come down for the care that actually needs to be on site and then return back to where they came from, as opposed to say, like your, uh, the example you gave, driving 100 miles for every one of these uh, visits and then dealing with traffic, dealing with parking, waiting in the doctor's waiting room for what might turn out to be a very brief encounter and then you know, turning around and going back again. So uh, telemedicine is great for patients. It eliminates distance constraints that might otherwise be there. So I just wanted to elaborate on that a little bit about well, how this can be used. Yeah. Thanks. That's a great example. And the one word, Bill, that comes to my mind, and I spent a lot of years in the healthcare industry, is improving access. That's one of the things this is doing is improving patient access. Very, very yep. important. Yep. We have about 20% of our listeners, Bill, who do not live in the United States. And I'd like you to speak for a little bit about telemedicine, again, pre-COVID, just you know the evolution of it that you alluded to. And you gave a great example about the dermatologist in Africa, so we can see how telemedicine has had an impact elsewhere. Is most of what you said about how telemedicine has evolved and how it's been deployed pre-COVID pretty much similar to what's happened in the United States? Or did other countries get to it before us or after us? Can you speak a little bit about that, please? Yeah, I, I would say that the U.S. is ahead of most other countries in terms of telemedical adoption. I, you know, to be clear, have spoken with people from the National Health Service in the U.K., 
They are adopting telemedicine, I'd say, somewhat behind us. I've spoken to clinicians in China about their adoption of telemedicine. And, you know, in some ways, China has been quicker to adopt some forms of the use of cell phones for uh, commerce, for example. You think about Baidu, for example. Yeah. Um, I would say that for a variety of reasons, the Internet isn't necessarily as widely distributed there, that uh, China is a is a huge opportunity for it. But the way that their medical system is constructed, uh, they're not where the U.S. is. So I would say in general, the U.S. is ahead of other countries, but all of the underpinnings that would be necessary for telemedicine are there. There's a lot of, uh, I mentioned the laws that act as obstacles for cross-state and interstate. There are also international laws that, that are relevant. If, you know, for example, the U.S. were to provide telemedical consultation in countries in the Middle East or wherever, which we've looked at, th there are uh, a variety of complicated uh, variations on uh, national laws regarding the use of telemedicine that, that have to be thought through. Hmm. It's not as easy as just delivering care from a distance. There are a whole bunch of other considerations, one of which we're going to get into pretty soon here. Let's move it up to COVID time then, okay? Yep. We know that COVID has had a dramatic effect on people's health. Unfortunately, tragically, many people have lost their lives. Many may have issues for the rest of their lives. Others were affected by it in, in different ways, economic and so forth. And it also affected whether or not people used healthcare and how they used healthcare. So my question would be, how do you see the impact of telemedicine on the use of healthcare and on the deployment of telemedicine? I know you touched on it before. Can you get a little deeper as far as the impact of telemedicine? Yeah, well, what we did at our institution was essentially to shut down all ambulatory practices and to dramatically restrict what we were doing in our inpatient facility. So we stopped doing elective surgery. We stopped taking visitors. The hospitals became skeletally staffed, if you will. And there's no real predicate for that in recent medical history. There's nothing like it. So that was a huge shock to the system. And organizations like mine that were successful in pivoting to telemedical paradigms uh, had to train their providers how to use telemedical encounter, you know, what's the appropriate etiquette, what audiovisual technology do you use, what are the, how do you document, the, the, all, all of these sorts of things, and also had to educate every new patient on how to have a telemedical encounter, you know, using their, their phone, their iPad, their, uh, their laptop, their desktop. Some of what we learned will be durable. Some of it, some care, much care has gone back to uh, interpersonal contacts in the office. But some disciplines, like, for example, behavioral health, can be handled almost as well and in some ways better over a telemedical link than in an office visit. And there are certain aspects of internal medicine, certain specialties in internal medicine. Diabetes might be an example of that, where a lot can be accomplished over a telemedical link. So those things will be durable. Patients now understand how to do this. 
if you think that patients as members uh, for an insurance provider, they call them members, we call them patients. Yeah. Uh, the insurance providers are now recognizing that this is here to stay. And their big concern, to go back to your original question, was that prior to the pandemic, telemedicine, what they wanted to put the brakes on it for fear that it would become a new additional way of consuming healthcare rather than a replacement way of consuming healthcare. So in effect, they would be paying for more healthcare than they did before because you know, you've taken, as we said earlier, the friction out of the encounter. And it's very convenient for patients to have a telemedical visit and they'll just do more medicine using telemedicine than they had previously. I think we've shown, at least in our world, that that hasn't been the case, that there hasn't been a big uptick in consumption of medical services relating to telemedicine. So I think that that's a reality. And, you know, as, as you know, maybe not so much our parents or we baby boomers, but yeah. um, younger people are used to getting just-in-time uh, fulfillment of the things they want, whether it's in shopping, of access to music. It's more impulsive almost Yes. to get done. If I want to ship something, if I want to find information out, it's all sort of readily available, maybe arguably too available. So um, I think that there is a movement towards just-in-time medical care that, that we have to acknowledge and, and be responsive of. So I, I think that's sort of a, maybe a lengthier answer than you had hoped for, but it's a big change. And, you know, we're only just coming out of the pandemic's peak. So uh, there are a lot of lessons to be learned, but anybody who's in medicine now will tell you that telemedicine is here to stay. Yes. And what you said was very interesting. And it reminds me of a guest I had on recently, James Cridland, who was talking about podcasting and also radio. And the phrase he kept using was the younger people want things on demand on demand. And that's kind of what we're talking about here. This concludes episode number 49 of our two-part series with Dr. William Hansen, in which we discuss telemedicine trends, opportunities, and the future. We hope you'll join us soon for episode number 50, part two of our conversation. Thanks for listening to this episode of Looking Forward. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something. I also hope that you'll tell others about our show. If you have any comments or ideas for future episodes, please contact me at my website, jeff-ostroff.com. That's J-E-F-F-Ostroff, O-S-T-R-O-F-F.com. This is Jeff Ostroff inviting you to join us again next time on Looking Forward.